Welcome to Season 6 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so glad that you joined me today. Before we get started with this week's interview, I wanted to say a quick thank you to all those that have subscribed, listened to and shared the episodes. If you get a chance, please take a few minutes to leave a review and comment on iTunes. It will help get the episodes to as many teachers as possible. Today I have the great pleasure of sharing this next episode of the Art of Teaching podcast with you. Professor Andy Hargraves needs no introduction. He is a speaker, author, advisor and researcher who advocates for equitable and inclusive education, a strong teaching profession and a positive change in education worldwide. The conversation was so much more than that though. In this existential interview, we talked about legacy, children and grandchildren and the things that he has changed his mind about. I'm so grateful that he took the time to chat with me. Andy Hargraves, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad we could finally get this together. Yeah, it's really, really lovely to speak to you. And uh, whereabouts are you phoning in from? I am coming in from Ottawa in uh, Canada. This is the traditional land of the Algonquin people, which, uh, as you do in Australia, it's important to acknowledge and recognize and be grateful for. It is a beautiful day outside. Uh, You can probably see, your listeners won't, but the view behind me is our uh, back garden. It's the middle of summer here, the middle of winter there, Uh, but uh, lovely to be talking to you. Fantastic. And uh, what is your, probably the most important question of our interview, uh, what is your coffee order? You said it's very boring, but what is that? Just for when I can finally buy your coffee. My uh, coffee order is uh, the weakest kind of filtered coffee you can possibly get uh, with cold milk added. And as I like to say, I like my coffee weak and I like our teachers strong. Fantastic. And um, an item that is still on your bucket list. You said you don't really have a bucket list, but so what are some of your goals? So uh, uh, my goals are more (laughs) around activities than they are around uh, places. Some of them are almost every day. They're being with my family, with my friends, with my uh, colleagues, getting up every morning, feeling useful that the the work I do has meaning for people, helps and supports and challenges people from uh, time to time. I love hiking. I am a passionate uh, long distance hiker. I've walked the length of the UK uh, from bottom to top, not all in one go. Uh, I've walked almost half the Appalachian Trail. I'm now doing a long distance trail from Holland through to Nice uh, in Europe in uh, stages. Uh, if I, I'm still going, my legs are still working, my brain can still tell me where to go, I should be doing a transit of the Alps by the time I'm 75. So uh, we'll see. But, you know, each year is, uh, each year is a blessing, as I say. Yes. And, um, and I'm more interested in, you know, what I, uh, what I write, what I think, who I'm with. Um, whether it's any use to anybody, and uh, if if I can keep challenging myself physically. Fantastic. And what is it, uh, Andy, about the, the outdoors that you love so much? Well, the outdoors, it's a, 
part of my upbringing. You know, I grew up in a mill town in uh, northern England. Um, the, the sarcastic comment that we all made was uh, the great thing about our town was it was easy to get out of. So it was uh, surrounded by hills, by moors, uh, wildness. Uh, I still love that wildness. It was free. Uh, when you grew up in a very yeah. modest kind of family financially, it was something everybody could do. You could just put on your boots, get out there, be with people, uh, have a good time, enjoy the wildness of the weather. And uh, that's still a big part of me. And um, wherever I go, I love to walk the land. I think it's a really good way to understand where you are. You meet lots of people while you're doing it. So it's not just a nature thing, it's a people thing too. Fantastic. I couldn't agree more. I grew up in the uh, in the beautiful Midlands uh, in the Peak District and some of my fondest memories are, are walking through the Peak District and getting out on a Sunday afternoon and going to the, yeah. the pubs with my family and it's just, it's yeah. so beautiful and I think it's, as I get older, it's something that I miss quite a lot more than I thought I would, yeah. um, is, is that beautiful countryside. Well, you know, I went to university in Sheffield, which is not far from the Peak District where I did my first degree. I met my wife there. And uh, we spent a lot of weekends hiking out in the Peak District, so a lovely part of the world. Beautiful. Um, and Andy, you mentioned that um, there's a book by Alistair, uh, sorry, Alistair MacLeod, No Great Mischief. Uh, why is that a book that's so significant to you? Well, I actually read this when I was in Australia. It's uh, by a Canadian author, and uh, I was in Perth. And whenever I go to Perth, I've got a thing I like to do, which is to get on a bicycle and uh, go down the Swan River to Fremantle. And if I'm feeling super fit, uh, also to cycle all the way back. And I never did it because I was reading this book, uh, No Great Mischief by Alistair MacLeod. It is, uh, he's a, usually a short story writer, a Canadian author, and it's about three brothers. And uh, their parents die. Or they fall through the ice when they're small. The older brothers are old enough to kind of make a rough living for themselves, trying to run a farm, but it's difficult for them, challenging, they get into trouble. And he's the lucky one, in inverted commas, because his grandparents live in a lighthouse, and they take him into their lighthouse, and he becomes an orthodontic surgeon. So he's separated from his family, he's lost his parents, they fell through the ice. But through his education, really, he becomes the lucky one. But in doing so, is struggling throughout the book to reunite with, to understand, to empathize with his brothers who have very different kind of flawed and challenged lives. And I am the youngest of three brothers. And um, uh, one of them's passed away now, but my, my eldest brother is uh, still here. So it made me think a lot about my class, my, de my destiny, my luck. Uh, and uh, my relationship with them. Fantastic. That's such a such a beautiful story. It's amazing how uh, books can, the same book can speak to us at different points in our life. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's a really beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, you mentioned, uh, obviously, uh, if you were to have a dinner party with anybody, obviously your family and friends would be there, but you also mentioned someone called Nadia Hussain. Why would you like them to attend the dinner party? So, do you know who Nadia Hussain is? I don't, no. So, uh, Nadia Hussain's a celebrity on the made herself famous by winning the Great British Bake Off. So, the oh, Great yes. British 
Bake Off is um, remade in many different countries. I'm sure they have an Australian version. They definitely have a Canadian one here. And it, it's competitive and they throw people out of the kitchen like they used to throw people off the island in Survivor. And, and Nadia Hussain as this uh, remarkable Muslim woman uh, came came on to the Great British Bake Off and introduce uh, many British people of all backgrounds, all races, all cultures, to her her love of cooking, her idea of uh, family, um, her her upbringing, her uh, culture, phenomenal achievements. You know, she baked the cake for the Queen's last jubilee. Uh, she's written cookery books. She's written children's books. She's a public speaker. So whatever a culture, whatever a background, it, it's a phenomenal set of accomplishments. But uh, someone once wrote she did more for British race relations than 20 years of government policy. Gosh, wow. What a fascinating guest to have at the dinner party. I wouldn't mind a uh, invitation to that one. It sounds... Uh... Perhaps you'll listen in and take me up on my offer. Hopefully. Well, uh, if you uh, if you are listening, Nadia, uh, you would be more than welcome uh, to be a guest on the podcast and uh, would love uh, to taste some of your cakes as well. So uh, who knows? Maybe she is listening. Um, Andy, just moving on to some of your uh, incredible work. I mean, there's, there's so much to talk about and we couldn't possibly uh, give it justice. But I did... Um, just want to uh, just really briefly have a chat about you mentioned a little bit about your up um, your, your upbringing um, but also I wanted to ask about um, a story of a great teacher or a bad one uh, that has an impact on your life or has had an impact on your life well uh, many of us become teachers because we were taught by teachers yeah and um, we either want to be the teachers who inspired us or we want to be the opposite yeah. of the teachers who made our lives a misery. And my education, like most people's, I guess, has both of them. And yeah. in primary school, uh, I had a teacher called Mary Hindle, who was in the ninth, around 1960, uh, was years ahead of her time. She was having kids uh, work on projects, uh, do class newspapers, uh, be pretty autonomous, work in groups. Uh, love of language. Uh, she's also very good on the, on the basics, including having a kind of well-ordered discipline a class. It wasn't an either or, it, it was a both end. And uh, I, I really wanted to be a teacher like she was. Uh, she was a great inspiration. And many years later, my old school asked me back to lay the foundation stone of the new building in 2002. Yes. And I said, I would do this if I could do this with my best teacher, Mary Hindle, who was still alive in her 80s. So if you go into the school now, you'll see both of our names. Wow. Uh, uh, you know, foundation store laid by former pupil, Professor Andy Hargreaves, and his teacher, Mary Hindle. And then I went to secondary school, and um, I had a great first year. Then my dad died when I was uh, 12. And um, everything plummeted the way my mum family had a great deal of difficulty struggling with it. So I suddenly had a lot of responsibility I wasn't expecting. And uh, teachers weren't very accommodating for the kind of life I had, the kind of struggles I was dealing with, or the kind of curriculum that they subjected me to. So my secondary school in a very traditional boys grammar school in the 1960s, was the kind of evil twin of my oh, wonderful primary school teacher 
and uh, I wanted to be the best of the best and avoid being the worst of the worst, really. Yeah. Wow, it's so interesting to hear that uh, juxtaposition of both your primary school experience and also your high school experience. And what yeah. what impact do you think both both of those have had on your approach to education and some of your um, uh, uh, some of your, your your more recent work? How has that impacted you? Well, you know, I think after I've been in teaching, after I've been in teaching a bit, uh, and then I went on to do a postgraduate study, uh, a master's degree, which was converted into a PhD. So they asked me to transfer. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, really at first, what I really cared about was social justice. I cared about it at that time in social class terms. Now. I also care about it in terms of, uh, you know, race, uh, sexuality, minoritization, all the other dimensions of uh, social justice. So, uh, I really wanted classrooms that would be better, more engaging places for kids to learn. Um, and I think I went in at first with a pretty uncharitable view of teachers, particularly, you know, the kind of teachers who taught me. And I think they yeah. just. Uh, I felt that just if they could just get their act together or I could kind of harangue them into doing it, then everything would be better. When I started my PhD, uh, I went in to do fieldwork and just sat in classrooms and watched teachers teach. Uh, after a while, I, I, the, the kinds of questions I was interested in changed. Instead of being plagued by worries about what teachers didn't do, I became more interested in why teachers did what they did, not why they didn't do something else. Because I think most of us have good reasons for doing what we're doing. Mm, and yeah. there's usually things about the people around us or the context that we're in that sort of shape shape what we do, how we teach, how we do anything, uh, really. So I'd say ever since then, uh, a lot of my career has been in order to help kids how how can we help teachers be the best they can be? And a lot of that is about shaping the work environment, mm -hmm. uh, who are the colleagues, how they collaborate with the colleagues, how supported or not they feel by that they feel by leadership, whether policies help them or interfere with with what they're doing and undermine uh, what they're doing. And then yeah. from thinking about how that helps teachers, you know, I thought about leadership and then change, and now whole countries uh, really are groups that I work with in order to try and set that on the right path. Fantastic. And this this may sound like an obvious question, any considering what the world has been through in the last 18 months, but your most recent work, um, which I have I've covered in uh, highlighting and pages have been folded and it's been written all over, so uh, which I think is a sign of a good book. Um, but why why write a book now about well-being in schools? Um, did Were you able to see did you imagine that this was coming in terms of COVID-19 or was there more of a deeper um, drive for you to write a book like this? Well, you know, one thing about life is timing. And um, uh, some books I've written have been casualties of atrocious timing. Yes. My first book, uh, which was based on my PhD thesis, was the first ever study of uh, middle schools in the UK. These are schools for kids aged 9 to 13. And um, it was a lovely book. It, it got great reviews. People thought it was really well written, very accessible, interesting. And the year it came out, the government decided to abolish all middle schools. So <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it was the book that was a kiss of death, basically, and, and sold almost nothing. 
this this book, uh, the book on well-being, is one of a trio, and um, it comes out of a couple of pieces of work that my colleague Dennis Shirley and I were doing. One with a group of teachers in the Pacific Northwest in the rural schools, trying to uh, focus on student engagement, how to help their kids learn in rural isolation. You have a lot of that in Australia. Many different kinds of rural isolation, uh, white working class, uh, in indigenous migrant farm workers. So many different cultural forms of minoritization in that book. And, and they were interested in student engagement and we followed them. So we ended up writing a book on student engagement, not because we thought it was a great thing to do, but because they did, um, we believed them. And uh, we kind of went along with them and helped them and did a lot of reading and observing and feedback. And at the same time, we were doing a project, uh, one of a series of projects in, with 10 school boards, school districts in Ontario, uh, Canada. Ontario has about 13, 14 million people. It's bigger than many countries, about the size of, I don't know, the Netherlands or, or somewhere like that. And um, uh, we were with them in about 2014, and, and the government had a change of leader, not a change of party, but a change of leader. And from being very focused on test scores and top-down accountability, and mainly literacy and math, as a result of a new premier coming in, like, you know, the premiers of your uh, states, for example, uh, she really wanted to focus. She had a background in uh, Indigenous studies, and uh, she also was an LGBT uh, grandmother. And so she cared a lot about bullying and exclusion and well-being. So in the middle of us working with this group of uh, 10 school districts, the government actually put well-being on the agenda. And, you know, for people who say policy doesn't make a blind bit of difference, they are totally wrong because what that shift of policy did was uh, really enable people to come forward with things they'd always cared about. And so suddenly we were out in schools and we were saying, you know, we asked them what, what were their projects focusing on? And they were doing things like building resilience walls, uh, developing mindfulness, nine different programs of uh, emotional uh, self-regulation, uh, finding ways of connecting curriculum for their indigenous kids to, uh, to the land, to nature outdoors, not just kind of driving them through the tests and, and trying to get the test scores up. And the whole framework uh, for well-being uh, within Ontario was, was developed in consultation with Indigenous leaders. So at the heart of it is sense of spirit and sense of self. I say this almost nowhere else in any well-being framework. And the view was is, is that what's essential for Indigenous kids, Aboriginal kids, is good for all kids. A sense of spirit doesn't mean a Christian or any other religion. It means really feeling part of something bigger than yourself. And so this was linked to emotional well-being, cognitive well-being, physical uh, well-being. And, and we followed the teachers and looked at what they focused on. And, and, and we also, because we're critical friends, which means uh, critical appreciative. We appreciate what they do. We try to draw attention to it. And we ask them sometimes, how, are you missing something here? Or when you look at well-being, is it possible that when you're concentrating a lot on self-regulation, for example, 
is it perhaps a culturally biased way of, of dealing with kids' well-being? Yeah. So is it always good for kids to be self-regulated? If you watch Sing 2, the movie, <laughs> you know, the kids want to have pride and, pride and shame. They, they want love and pain. They, they want to be the fullest emotional selves, yeah. not just to be kind of quiet and down like middle-aged white middle-class men all the time. And yeah. so, so we would feed these things back to them. We'd ask some questions like, What's wrong with growth mindsets? Yeah. And they'd look at us like, well, we're crazy. You know, how could you, how could anything possibly wrong? But once they got into it, yeah. they'd say, yeah, you know, there are, um, the answer to everything is not for the kids to have a growth mindset. If you're yeah. hungry, if you're hungry, if you're not well supported, um, a growth mindset's not, not all of the answers. So this can distract attention away from other things yeah. that are important. But the short answer to your question is, is, uh, yeah, well-being became a big issue through the pandemic in the middle of us writing this uh, book. But but it comes from the teachers and it comes from the schools. It, it doesn't come from us. Yeah, look, that's so important, Andy. And, and there's, there's so much in there that I would love um, to unpack. I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, I just wanted to really quote from your book um, in the preface, which is Live Long and Prosper. And I just want to talk about maybe how our perception... Yeah, 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 yeah. you know, yeah. That, that's not our... You do know I, that's not our quote. That is I, I do, Star Trek. I yeah. do know that, and I, uh, I, I'm a diehard Trekkie, and so I loved that. Um, I, I bet you wish that quote was attributed to you, but it is obviously a, a, a Star Trek quote. But I did just wanted to read um, a quick quote from your book, and it says, um, if you look at most educational policies since the 1990s, you might imagine that success is really what matters, and sometimes practically all that matters. Keeping that question in mind about the importance of um, how has schools shifted over the course of recent decades to, to focus more on well-being and and what do you think the primary role of schools are is it purely academic what is it well many years ago when we were working with our uh, school boards in ontario you know canada is a bilingual country it's the only i believe it's the only a constitutionally bilingual multicultural society in the world and uh, I live in Ottawa which is the capital city of uh, Canada so uh, 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 bilingualism is very important here all my colleagues are, I'm not bilingual um, for reasons of history I'm two terrible French teachers um, <laughs> they uh, but all my colleagues are uh, uh, fully bilingual here and um, and so we have French schools as well as English schools uh, yeah. they're French language they're also French culture, um, and the French culture here is quite distinctive. And uh, around about, I don't know, must have been about uh, 2010, uh, we, in our group of uh, 10 school boards, one of them was a French language school board, and we went into one of the schools. And they said to us, you know, for us, in French Canadian culture, identity is more important than achievement. Well, and that uh, now, now, you know, if you said that anyway, people say, oh, yeah, you know, so that, uh, you know, where have you been on this planet the last three or four years? But but then that that was quite a revolutionary idea that they uh, that in that culture, uh, who you are and, and what you become is is at least as important as how successful you are in any academic or or other sense. 
And uh, so my colleague Dennis Trell and I are currently writing a book on identity, again, coming out of this out of this work. And, and now we'd understand how important that is if you're indigenous, um, if you're a newcomer, if you've come from Ukraine or Syria or Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that when you come, you don't just come with things that you're missing. You, you come with things that you bring, things mm-hmm. that you bring to the culture, that, that, that add to the culture. And, and the whole inclusion policy in Ontario which is what brought us in in the first place, is is based on the principle that you cannot achieve. Well, it's really hard to achieve in a school if it doesn't in some fundamental sense recognize and value who you are. That that began with kids with disabilities, to see your disability actually not not only as a lack or a deficit, but, but to understand your disability, to understand and to know people, famous people, accomplished people who have your disability, to be able to advocate with your teacher uh, what you need to support your learning when you have that that disability. And from that, it's moved into culture, into language, into race, into uh, gender identity, into many aspects of who you are as a human being. And in our book, we talk about a report in the 19, early 1990s from UNESCO called Learning the Treasure Within. And it described four kinds of learning. Yeah. And it said two of them our schools pay a lot of attention to. And two of them then in the 1990s, they pretty much ignore. Mm-hmm. And the ones we pay attention to are learning to know. So that's, you know, mass literacy. The Hundred Years' War, Boyle's Law in Physics, although yeah. I go around the world asking yeah. anybody if they can state Boyle's Law to me and they can't, or who won the Hundred Years' War, or even who was in it, and they can't tell me. So why on earth do we learn this stuff? Yeah. And um, and then there's learning to do. Uh, you know, learning to do is, is uh, making things, uh, drawing things, um, constructing things. And we do that not as much as the first one, but still quite a bit. But the other two are learning to be. How are you as a human being uh, with yourself, uh, with other people around you? And learning to live together because this came uh, just after uh, bringing down the Berlin Wall. Gosh. Um, And the report was really written in the spirit that we thought the Berlin Wall coming down would solve everything. And it didn't. Then you had the war in the former Yugoslavia and in many other parts of the world. So think about Ukraine now, you know, yeah. learning to be and learning to live together. Yeah. If if we can't have those, we can't really have anything. Yeah. And and, and it's this that's the foundation of well being. Not not um not a bit of self regulation or a bit of mindfulness or yeah. um or only these skills, but fundamental sense of how education develops us as human beings in community with other human beings and with nature. This is the indigenous concept. It's not even just us as as living people, but, yeah. but it, it's it's us and being part of the entire world around us. It, it's a very humble way of thinking about what it means to be educated. Wow, it, it's really beautiful, Andy. And I remember reading your book. I was 
there's very very few books that keep me up all night um i usually sleep pretty well um especially after having two little kids you try and get as you sleep whenever you can but i i read this book from cover to cover and it gave me goosebumps um just to start oh. to reimagine and start to rethink about what's possible with school because i know it I, I i could i my understanding is obviously from an english context so i went to primary school over there and a little bit of high school and i currently am, am proud to say that i teach in australia but we quite often quantify things we want to have data we want to have we want to measure progress and it was so lovely to be able to read your um work on well-being and and to realize that um that, that childhood is not something uh, sorry is something that has its own value and is not just kind of this waiting room for adulthood and it's it's really really made me think about how I interact with um, not only my own children but the kids in my class. Yeah. We're not we're not waiting for them to become adults. It's such a childhood I think is such a significant part of anyone's life. And um, would you mind maybe just unpacking some of that and to talk about why why should childhood have its own value and why is it so so important in developing these wonderfully well-rounded um, adults? Um. But let's begin very personally. You talked about your own kids. Uh, we've got five grandchildren at the moment. Yeah. And um, the moment. <laughs> uh, one, one of them is staying with us uh, right yeah. now. Josephine, uh, her, they, her, uh, she's from Hong Kong. Her parents live in uh, Hong Kong. My son and his wife uh, live and work in uh, Hong Kong. We haven't seen them for a long time wow. uh, because of uh, COVID. So they've been with us since May, actually. And... Um, and, you know, when I'm with Josephine, who's four, um, and spend the most delightful hours with her when, for instance, she'll open the garage door, the garage door will open, and she'll fling out her arms and say, welcome to my world. Now, now, Beautiful. okay, you can't, you can't be like that with everyone when you're 45. It wouldn't get you very far with Vladimir Putin if you were negotiating with him, for example. But... So you can't have complete innocence about everything. But what when I'm with Josephine at four, um, and she can count to Mandarin, and uh, she can count to 20 in Mandarin, she can do all kinds of things. And she loves learning, she loves talking, conversation. She likes being spoken to as an adult uh, a lot of the time, who uh, has responsible views on, on life, including what I do or don't eat for breakfast, and whether it's, whether it's healthy or not. Um, I'm not thinking about here's somebody who's going to have a job that's not been invented yet. I'm not thinking about her 21st century skills yeah. or a global or a global competences. Um, I'm thinking about how fully she can live as a child, and and uh, and that doesn't mean literally infantilizing her. It, it means feeding her imagination, yeah. supporting her sense of joy, having conversations with her about difficult issues uh, like, like bullying or meanness, for example, um, and, uh, and answering all the questions as honestly as we can in an age-appropriate way. Yeah. And, uh, and I believe powerfully, as do many other people, if if she can live fully, not innocently, but but fully as a child, um, with us, and with her brother, and with her friends, and with the world around her, she 
she she will live well as an adult yeah. and, and make a good contribution to society. Yeah. And what is um, Annie? What's being a grandfather taught you? How has that changed you? I know we, uh, so we that, don't have an unlimited amount of time, but how uh, how how has that changed you and your approach to the amazing work that you're doing? Uh, I wasn't expecting that question. Sorry, um, I, didn't put that, the, I didn't send that to you. My apologies. Those, but, but no, those are the kinds of questions I like. I like the best. Um, I don't know if it's changed me, but. But it, it certainly developed me, I think. Um, I retired a bit early from Boston College in the United States. I retired in my late 60s. And uh, you can all think of different reasons uh, for that. I retired a lot earlier than the vast majority of my colleagues. Professors go on into their 70s, sometimes their 80s uh, even. Sometimes people wish they wouldn't, but <laughs> but, but but many are still you know productive and contributing um it's one of those professions where age does not always wear you down yeah uh but our three of our grandchildren were in canada and uh, my wife and i who retired in her early 60s uh from being a school principal uh talked a lot about wanting to be with them more regularly mm. when it was a source of pleasure for them and meaning and a source of pleasure and meaning for us. And when you retire, I mean, I'm really not retired. Uh, you, you know, like I work almost as hard as I used, but I'm not full-time in an institution anymore. Um, uh, people will also talk about the money and various other things, but really the, the biggest crisis you face is an existential one. So I was moving to Ottawa. It's a smallish city. It's not one of the world's leading universities because it's bilingual. So half of its citations are not in English, so they don't get the scores up. Uh, but, but um, and it's cold a lot for a lot of the year. And I thought, what will happen to me if I go to the frozen north and I disappear? What will happen if all the applause stops? Wow. If there are no more invitations? If it comes to an end, what, how would I feel about that? And <laughs> I, so I discussed this with my friends and with my family. And they said, oh, don't be stupid. You know, as soon as people know you're available, they'll be lining up to have you. And I said, well, you know, perhaps they will. But I really need to consider the possibility mm. that they won't. And, and I decided I'd be okay. Uh, after 40 years, you know, I've done some good work. Not all of it, but most of it. And um, some people would say their lives were better for uh, what I've been able to to contribute and I carry on writing nobody would read it and I do more walking and I'd have my family and and when you bring moving back to Canada in 2018 and COVID together and all the time I've I've had with the grandchildren yeah. in my life it it has enriched my life beyond beyond anything 
Wow. Uh, you know, I didn't have no relationship or a terrible relationship, but it has this incredible fullness to it. Like, like when my own children were small, you know, I was a professor, so I was home a lot. I was home, you know, put the kids to bed, get them up, get them off to school, because my wife had to go to school before I did because she was teaching. So, you know, I could kind of do all that, do the ironing, do put, put the lunch on uh, uh, for, for dinner, could do all that. So it brought all that back and more because, because um, these children are young and I'm not worrying about money like I was worrying about money when my children were young or worried so much about my time, like I was worried about my time when my children were, so I'm, I think I'm able to be everything for them I was with my children when they were small, and more. Yeah. Wow. And that's, that's been transformational. Wow, that's really beautiful to hear, and there's, I mean, money uh, and fame and accolades are definitely not everything, you know, I mean, you have the incredible privilege of having that, being able to connect with the grandchildren and really build those memories. And I think it's it's so important. I know for me, uh, being a parent has fundamentally changed me in ways that yeah. I, I never thought it would, you know? I never thought it would. I mean, when I see, I have two um, beautiful, strong yeah. uh, girls, uh, a wife who yeah. I adore, and it just, I want to be someone that is um, that is not only present, but I want to be someone that is available for what they need. I, I was reading a yeah. quote by um, a Professor Jordan Peterson the other day, and he was saying that you only have young children for four years. Um, and it really hit home because one of my children is four and a half, another one is two and a mm -hmm. half. And my oldest yeah. one is not a little girl anymore. She has opinions, right. she has thoughts. Yeah. She, yeah doesn't always want to cuddle. Um, and so yeah. it really, it really made me think uh, about what's important. And for me, um, my oldest one starts school uh, next year. And so all of a sudden this um, quest to improve schools and to have important discussions with educators has become that extra, that little bit more personal, I think, because she's about to go into a system that, um, yeah. that I, I think needs a bit of change in many ways so uh yeah, yeah, Andy, thank indeed. you thank you so much honestly for your honesty um i i was not expecting it to go there but i appreciate you taking the time to answer well, well you know in the in the a book i never wrote which i should have done uh was a book on the emotions of teaching uh right. because i did, did a lot of research on it in the 1990s a lot of articles uh, uh sort of like scholarly articles and a few professional articles and, and somewhere in all that, um, I say the, the most underestimated emotion in teaching is surprise. Wow. And, and the joy of teaching is, is not when kids meet their targets yeah. or, or, or do what they're supposed to. It, it's actually when they do something totally different that you weren't expecting. And, and every day is full of that when, you, when you're a teacher and, and when you're a parent. And surprise, uh, uh, su surprise is the essence of learning, which is, you know, looking at something you didn't expect. Wow. And, and responding to it. And that, that's what kids give you, is wow. surprise. So Andy, how how do you keep how do you keep that muscle so strong in your own life? Um, I mean, you've 
Um, like I said, you're retired, but probably more busy than you ever have been before. Um, how do you how do you keep that element of surprise in your own life, that sense of wonder and optimism? Because you sound like someone that is um, endlessly four busy. years old. <laughs> four years old. <laughs> but, Existentially. Uh, but practically, though, how do you how do you continue to to stretch yourself and broaden your perspectives and understanding um, in uh, obviously into your into your retirement as you do? Yeah, well, um, I was born enthusiastic. It, it used to drive, when I'm a teenager, like the last thing you're supposed to be when you're a teenager, oh. especially a male teenager, is enthusiastic. And I used to drive my friends crazy. They used to say, you're so enthusiastic. And it, it was not a compliment. Um, and, and so part of me just doesn't know any other way wow. to be basically um I'm, uh, and if you have that you know sometimes it can wear you out it can it can and so it, it's not always a blessing but but if you have that to begin with wow. you, you you have so much the problem and i think a lot of kids have and the problem with our institutions is, is that they knock that out of people a lot, a lot. They knock it out of kids and, and they knock it out of the adults as well. Uh, I think we come in with truckloads of enthusiasm when we come into the world. And, and if we're lucky, we can hang on to that. And I've been lucky and perhaps a bit strategic, uh, finding, you know, I was, uh, uh, I told my old teacher once, um, uh, you know, when I was in your class, nobody could read my handwriting and I was always getting in trouble for talking. And now, now I make my living off both of them. Yeah. <laughs> and she laughed because, and then she turned around to my wife and she said, how do you manage to control him? And she lied and she said, I don't, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. which so, so our, you know, I found a job in universities in universities and they mainly been very supportive of me. And I mean, my colleagues around me, uh, like some wonderful colleagues I have now at the University of Ottawa in this little center we have, uh, and, uh, you know, universities value autonomy. Yeah. And, and independence and at their best they they really support that uh i once wrote a report at a former university in in canada we were in schools when a very right-wing government came in and systematically set about destroying the teaching profession and we recorded that and we reported it and when we reported it uh the government um uh, called my dean on the day the report came out, uh, Michael Fulham, yeah, a good good friend and colleague, and insisted he walked up to Parliament immediately and gave them a hard copy of the report, <laughs> and and threatened to to remove their whole funding stream for the university, on the basis of my report. Wow, and my dean, colleague and friend, uh, Michael Fulham, uh, supported me and supported all the work that is 
sometimes critical of uh, governments doing the wrong thing. So uh, I found a place that can support my way to be wow. and therefore what I can do with it for other people. Yeah. And, and I think there are a lot of teachers in a lot of schools who don't have that, who, who are constantly being hemmed in, um, told to be careful not to speak out. And uh, teachers go into teaching because they have that enthusiasm. Yeah. And we need to do everything we can to feed it and support it. Wow. That's so important. Um, I was speaking to um, Professor Vivian Robinson a little while ago, and she's talking about the difference between um, change and improvement. Um, and I just wanted to, um, if you wouldn't mind, get you to unpack um, a quote that you had, and it says, says that uh, change is easy to imagine, hard to implement, and incredibly difficult to sustain. And you also went on to say that change is mandatory and improvement is optional. Would you mind spending just a few moments um, unpacking what you meant by that? Because there seems to be a little bit of synergy between what you're saying and also what Professor Vivian Robinson is talking about there. Well, we can't avoid change. Uh, we can try and deny it. We can try and um, ignore it, put it to one side. But change is everywhere. When we get married, we change. When we have a baby, we change. When we move countries, we change. When we move house, we change. When we get divorced, we change. Um, change is in the nature of growing up and our, our relationships. And the classic theories of identity and development are all about how we deal with these phases uh, in in our life and come to terms with them. Uh, you know, I'm um, I'm retired. That's a change. I'm growing older. That's a change. I have grandchildren. That that's a change. Uh, so, uh, and, and then the, the world around us is in constant change. Some of it is uh, good. Uh, so a lot of groups have a lot more rights than they used to now. Their world is improving. Uh, we're more tolerant in a, in a lot of areas, but we also have war, threats on democracy, uh, racism, digital distraction. Um, all these are things that we have to deal with, whether we want to or not. Uh, the question is, is not only how we do that, but how well uh, we do that. And, and, and improvement, improvement is, is about positive change uh, that, that makes us and other people better uh, through the experience. And that is what we have. We don't have any control over change itself. It, it's there. Uh, the only thing we have control over is, uh, is whether we improve. Uh, sometimes we're part of the problem. And that's a great thing because actually Really, the thing that's really hard to do is to change other people. The, but the thing we can do is to change ourselves. And in changing ourselves, we'll find it's a big part of our impact on other people around us. Yeah, I think that's so important. And um, Andy, as we uh, begin to uh, come to the end of our discussion, like I said, there is so many follow-up questions that I have, but um, I guess I'll just have to keep reading your work because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, Another a left a question from left field. Um, is there anything that you um, have changed your mind upon uh, with? Anything that you, uh, an assumption that you had that you realized was actually incorrect? Technology. I used to think all technology was the tool of the devil. Uh, this is particularly digital technology. 
and uh, sometimes it still is, uh, but uh, the, probably the first thing that changed my mind on that was, uh, you know, my projects changed my mind a lot on things uh, because I don't go in with preconceived notions. I don't do projects to prove things that I already believe um, and just get a few illustrations, but I try to go into projects with an open mind and, uh, and including an open mind that may challenge some of my fundamental beliefs or assumptions. And when we did our first project with Ontario, I knew little about uh, special needs. Apparently I have them. I've been uh, diagnosed adult ADHD uh, at quite a, a serious level, and that would not surprise you. Um, but through this project, uh, I learned a lot about what are called in different countries, assistive or adaptive technologies. So those are technologies that help kids with uh, disabilities. So. Uh, with very serious disabilities, uh, you might, you know, have to, like Stephen Hawking, you know, press things on a computer in order to be able to communicate with people. Uh, you might have visual impairments, so make the print bigger, make it make it smaller. Um, you might have dyslexia, so translating the text into sounds so that you can, doesn't mean you can't understand ideas or uh, knowledge, it just means you have difficulty with the process of uh, understanding the letters that you see in front of you. Mm. And, and, and through this, I learned that actually technology, digital technology can really enable a lot of kids who were never able to access the learning or express the learning, suddenly be able uh, to do so. And, and once that chink of light was opened, uh, it, it gave me a much more open-minded approach to other uses of technology that are transformative. For instance, connecting teachers across rural schools, yeah. when it's just too expensive and too far and too difficult to yeah. travel. You know, somebody once came to a workshop that I did in Northern Queensland, and I, I got the feedback at the end, and the, you know, the feedback was pretty good from the workshop. And um, I said to the person who was hosting it, Somebody, somebody wrote, you know, I came, I drove five hours to come to this workshop and it was worth it. And I turned it around to the person who was hosting the workshop, I said, hey, that's pretty good, isn't it? And they said, look, if you know where he came from, traveling five hours to go to anything is worth it. Yeah. So, yeah. so, um, so when we can connect people yeah. uh, through technology, it, breaks down the barriers of isolation. Wow. And I've been open to what technology can do with maths learning, for example, when you know the teachers may struggle with their own maths, but the kids can get very energized right. with what they can learn digitally. Um, so I'd say that, you know, there's a number of others, but I'd say that's a really big one that, that turned upside down what I believe. Amazing. There's, once again, Andy, there's so much in that uh, that warrants it's almost a whole nother podcast episode just in the answer to that question um, uh, that you generously gave us. Um, what do you, you want ask to... Other people, you ask other people that question, or was it just specially saved as an evil, uh, an evil thing in your tool bag for me? No, I think... Um, <laughs> look, I, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, by the lenses through which we view things, and I'm very aware that I have my own biases and my own... Um, um, 
perspectives and assumptions. And so I, I'm really interested in how we, um, how we challenge our own assumptions. I mean, I spent many years um, uh, working uh, in uh, kindergarten classrooms. And so for me, uh, children are some of the most wonderful, um, beautifully naive, optimistic, um, self-reflective individuals. And I was really quite upset to see how that changed as they progressed um, yeah. through to high school. And so for me, I'm very aware of my own biases. And I think um, uh, some of the greatest thinkers that I've had the privilege of interviewing are also lifelong learners. And so it's a question which I, mm. uh, I, I really love. So thank you for, uh, thank you so much for your honesty. And um, Andy, just in closing, um, both personally and professionally, um, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, well, you know, some people think it's in a, it's in a thing. So, you know, they have a basketball or a wing of a building named after them. You know, I'll, I'll always have that stone in my old primary school, but eventually somebody will 50 years will they'll knock that school down and that stone won't be there anymore. Yeah. Um, you might think it's in your books, uh, but, but if you look at anybody who's writing in education, who's uh, passed away 10 or 20 years ago, the, the number who are still being read is extremely tiny. Yeah. So we mustn't fool ourselves that our legacy is, is in the building that was named after us or the street or, or even the book in the library. Um, but but it, it's in, and I've had this, I've been nominated for a couple of prizes in the last few years. I've had a few prizes, but these prizes I didn't get. But what I did get was, was people's, um, people said things I never knew, like world leaders in education wow. would say, would say, before they were a world leader in education, they read something that I wrote. Wow while they still have time to read things, because once you're a world leader, you don't have time to read anything more than like two pages long. And, and it totally transformed their view of teaching or policy. And when, when they became a leader of their university or a leader, a minister, a deputy minister in a country or a leader in a global organization, uh, they, they said that word, which was 10, 20 years ago, had an enormous influence on them and so uh, I'm, I guess I'm making not a moral statement or even an emotional one I'm, I'm kind of making a factual one but what I've learned is is um, ma mainly now you don't go into a room and say you have this policy and it's the wrong one you need that policy instead and everybody kind of nods their head and says thanks very much we'll do that immediately but but rather you, you've done some work that's had a, a, a professional or an emotional connection with, with a principled educator in their formative years where they're still thinking, they're still developing, they're still open. And when they get the chance, 20 years later, they have an opportunity to do something about that. And so... Where's your legacy? Your, your, your legacy is your legacy as a teacher, actually. Um, 
Um, and you have no idea who those people will become, what influence they will have. But if you influence people when they're open to influence, later on they'll be, they'll be able to influence others. And it, it is that chain of paying it forward as a teacher, because writing is just a kind of teaching. It's that way of paying it forward that I think um, are opportunities we should never miss, because in that second, in that minute, in that sentence yeah. that you write, you've no idea what legacy it will have 20 years later. But if, it, if it's the right word, if, if it's the right class, if it's the right sentence, that, that, that's the legacy we can leave. Yeah. Um, you can't count it, but, but you have to believe it's possible. Yeah. Andy, that is a, a wonderful place, I think, to, uh, to wrap up our discussion today. And um, I just wanted to thank you uh, for your time and for, from the bottom of my heart for your amazing work. And like I said, your, your book, Wellbeing in Schools, was the first educational book that I read cover to cover. And I actually found oh, wow. yeah. I actually found myself getting quite emotional because it's not um, it's not every day I think that a book um, for me really captures my heart and really gets to the essence of why we do what we do as educators. So thank you for the countless hours that I'm sure have gone into that. Um, and I can't wait to get hold of your next work on identity and really follow your um, uh, follow your journey. So thank you so much for your contribution um, to what I think is the best. Um, a most meaningful profession in the world. Um, but um, I'm incredibly grateful for your time and uh, looking forward to having a chat at some point with you in the future soon. Thank you, Matthew, for this and for your leadership in the field. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.